This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with coach developer at UK Coaching, Tom Hartley. He discusses some of his reflections from working across a variety of different ages and how he's had to adapt to this, some of the challenges and things he's learned whilst working with coaches from other sports, and some key considerations he has when planning delivery. As always, please help us to grow this podcast by sharing it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So Tom, really appreciate you uh, spending a bit of your early afternoon with me and with us. And I guess we spoke briefly off air there, but uh, it sounds like all well and all good with Christmas and lots of Ikea building from the sound of it. Yeah, very good, Michael. And no, my, my my DIY skills are more like destroy yourself than do it <laughs> yourself. So yeah, that's where I'm at at the moment. Perfect. So I really appreciate you coming on. Obviously, I'd seen your profile and maybe some of the the segments or uh, content that you'd put out uh, on social media which I thought was really interesting and the thought-provoking and whatnot so uh, I thought it'd be great to get you on and discuss some of that for people that maybe haven't come across you or don't know your work you want to give us kind of a whistle-stop tour of um, I guess some, some of the highlights of your career and then where you are right now. Yeah of course uh, so I've worked in in football and in wider coaching for 20 to 25 years now uh, started off at Swindon in their community program, putting up goalposts on uh, cold February mornings, uh, and and always had that that dream of working full time within the game. So probably pursued a route that maybe lots of coaches have taken. Went off to the states, coached out there for a while, um, worked for a few different kind of soccer school franchises, and settled on a job with the FA on a program called the FA Skills Program which was set up back in 2007 uh, by Sir Trevor Brooking and and a few other people there at the organisation and spent 10 years at the FA working on on the skills programme, which was was an amazing experience, learned so much. Always felt like it was a apprenticeship, really. Um, so I was being paid, for, pay, paid while I learned all the way through. Um, so that was great. Spent some time at Arsenal within their women's programme, leading all their women and girls football uh, offer outside of the academy programme. Um, and now find myself at UK Coaching. Uh, so I'm a coach developer here, which effectively means that I work with lots of different coaches from a range of different sports who are all working with athletes um, who are on a trajectory towards a, an Olympic Games at some point in the future. So my role is to really kind of hold up some mirrors and support the coaches at uh, building their self-awareness, developing their confidence, developing a certain specific set of skills. And from a coaching perspective, I'm, I'm the assistant manager at Oxford United Women. Um, my role there is funny, going, going into an assistant manager role in senior football, for obvious reasons, feels really different to working in foundation phase and uh, youth development phase football. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's kind of taken me a, a bit of time to really reframe what my purpose is in that role in senior football. So for me, it's about... Uh, I'm, I'm polyfiller, I'm a translator and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a window fitter. So by that, I mean, I kind of can fill in the gaps with the polyfiller. So really following the lead of the, the head coach and, and looking to kind of really zoom in sometimes and work individually with players. Uh, a translator, so spend a lot of time looking at opposition footage, analysing what other teams do and thinking about the problems they might pose us and how we counter that. And then a window fitter, so maybe trying to look at things through a different perspective, through a different window, uh, just to kind of offer um, feedback and and uh, critical, friendly critical challenge, if you like, to other coaches around me. Um, so, yeah, that, that's me in a very, very short whistle-stop way. Uh, perfect. I guess the opening question for me linking to that last bit there, which is um, what do you see or what did you feel was the main differences between going from that foundation phase and you've, development phase coaching into obviously a senior environment where there is an element of performance that's needed as well yeah lots of things actually I mean when when I started and I made the transition I don't think I I didn't know what I didn't know so very quickly I was in an environment where you've got athletes who have been in the system for for a long time not that long I'm not calling them old (laughs) but they've been they've been playing for a while they've been coached by probably quite a few different coaches 
and they've got to a point where performance really matters and it goes without saying that when you're in youth development football and, and working in academies well performance is important but only to an extent you're looking at learning and development so for me it was about really um, understanding that balance between how important is learning and how important is performance and then based on that what are my behaviors as a coach what do the players need from me to be able to go and help them be at their best and I suppose this is just me but I went into that environment thinking I want to be liked I want players to come to me to my coaching style and approach to resonate with them and I kind of went went along the process or on the journey of thinking well they're really going to like me and they're really going to respond to me if they can see how I can make them a better player or how I can limit the things which are going to negatively impact on their performance come game day so by having conversations with players about what do you want from me as a coach how can I help you be your best a lot of the answers I'd get was well just tell me what to do which working with younger children perhaps I'd tear my hair out to an extent I think right I want you to problem solve to 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 use me as a resource to ask questions to set challenges and actually that's really important in football as well but I think it's about understanding well there's times where that's more appropriate than other points and there are times when actually just telling the players what they need to do is the most player-centered thing that you could possibly do rather than posing a question or create so for me that that was a big challenge and, and along with that then was well what are my behaviors like do I ask questions in practice do I offer more instruction um, do I give feedback uh, so there's a whole different different range of things that were going through my mind at that point um, which then just rippled into well swearing I mean that that's one that came up came up quite early for me um, obviously working with young children you don't swear it doesn't happen but actually sometimes at the right moment in an adult setting I, I mean I don't swear very much anyway um, so if I drop in a swear word at an appropriate time boom it, it's like lighting a fire um, so it's almost playing with things like that that I'd never really had to think about before which ultimately is trying to get the best out of this group um, when they only have a certain amount of time they can commit to their football. It's interesting you said there was one of the first things you spoke to the players and got the players' feedback. What made you do that as kind of a first port of call? And how did you go around having those types of conversations? I think that's me to, to an extent and, and part of my foundations as a coach. Coaching is certainly not a one-way uh, one street. It, it goes both ways. So I've always found by asking the player or asking the athlete, what do you want from me today? How can I help you be at your best? Questions like that. I, I don't know. I find a lot of people probably haven't been asked that before and they're quite surprised or don't quite know how to answer it because they're used to perhaps being told what to do more often than not. So engaging people in the process, taking them with you and, and almost showing them from the first step that this is a journey that we're on together, I believe is really, really powerful or has the, has the potential to be really powerful. I mean, no, nobody really likes being told what to do all the time. So if, if you can share with the players, well, what are we working on rather than what are you working on? I think that actually you, you create an opportunity for lots more buy-in. And did it surprise you when they said that, you know, we just want to be told? Did, was that a surprise to you when that came across from them? I think it was initially, just maybe from my own na naivety because they, they want to be picked. They want to play in, in, in the starting lineup every week. They want the room for error to be as small as possible. And the quickest, most effective way of doing that, perhaps, is telling them what. Now, if, I'm, if I was to coach in my way without taking into consideration what the players wanted, I'd probably pose questions, make it frustrating sometimes, um, leave some stuff open-ended, get them to work things out more often than not which I, I completely buy into as a coach. And I think that's, that's, that's a brilliant way forwards for coaches working at any level. But that has to be balanced off with the context of where you're working and what you're working towards. If it's the training session before the biggest game of the season, you don't want to leave any questions in the air. Whereas it's your first two training sessions like now, back after Christmas, perhaps we've got two weeks before we have our, our next competitive game. That's an opportunity to maybe pose some open questions to let players work out more things for themselves, to co-create more. Um, so going back to was it a surprise, perhaps it was, 
but I think as coaches it's about just having that awareness that, that different players need different things at different points and do you know what some some of the players will have always been told what to do so all of a sudden being asked what do you think could feel really unsettling like, and they think well, what what kind of coach is this he doesn't know anything if he's asking us what the answers are all the time so I think I think for any coach when they're thinking about how they involve their athletes and their players having a level of co-creation is really important but your context is king or your context is queen you've got to bear that in mind if, if it's got to fit where you are within the season and, and who you are within the group of people that you're working with and is there any particular scenarios or sessions that you put on where you begin to drip feed in the challenging of that um, command style so um, the example I give is that is there any particular sessions where maybe you ask them for their opinion of what they feel or what they think to hopefully get them further down the road where it might not all come from you where actually they can either help one another or they're more willing for you to embark guided discovery or all those other you know key coaching points is there any particular sessions you use or any particular uh, context you like to use to kind of break that barrier down slowly think it probably depends on quite a few different things how far away from a performance moment are you um what's the stage of the players where 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 are they at on their journey what do they need at this moment in time to to feel as confident as possible or or whatever and in terms of practice type i'm always a believer i I would always lean towards using practices that are game-based that have really high levels of decision making which actually probably lead to a, a higher level of error count within your practice and we know if, if if players are making mistakes in our practice and we're helping them understand um, what's happened leading up to them making a mistake so they can reflect on it and then maybe be able to adapt their performance next time it happens then you're creating players who recognize the situation they're able to to link what they see and what they do um, so having games where there's lots of stimulus, where they can repeat things without repeating things. So it might be a 2v2 practice where they're, they're trying to hit a target or go into a certain area, but every time they play it, like the game, it's a different different problem or a different picture that they have to solve. And then I think actually your coaching behaviours, your coaching skills really come into play. I, I was working with a coach from a completely different sport at work recently, and he was explaining, well, they go through a three-stage process with their players so if a coach notices an error then he's going to hold back to start with see if the player self-corrects if it happens again coach is going to hold back and and see if if someone else within the team a peer can go and support them and 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 help them with that and if it happens for the third time then then that's the cue for the coach to step in Uh, i i mean that's not necessarily going to work in every single environment but i think there's some real magic in that to hand over some of that responsibility to the athletes to, well, if, Michael, if you if you cross the ball and it went 30 yards behind the goal, you don't need a coach to tell you it was a rubbish cross. So <laughs> giving the players the opportunity to correct for themselves to start with and then finding the right time to intervene as a coach is just as powerful as intervening. I think what's interesting for me is I watched the um, Chelsea-Liverpool game uh, this weekend, which I think a lot of people did, and we talk about that like high line that Liverpool were playing and the problems that caused. And I, I always wondered, if, you know, if you try to implement that from day one, if I went into a team and went, right, this is how we're going to play, and this is me knowing how I was a defender. If someone then said to me, "How do you feel about this?" I'd have been like, "I hate it. <laughs> I want to drop off another ten yards." But if it's kind of, I guess, from my perspective, figuring out where can you begin to ask those questions in a way that becomes useful. Because if you just constantly question them in an environment, maybe where they're uncomfortable or unhappy or is something new, you're probably going to get a negative answer. Whereas if you can begin to ask them questions in a context that gets them to think or challenge or go, oh, maybe this will help us as a team. I guess that's where quite a lot of the magic happens with that process of going from, really command to then exploring other avenues that you can go down. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and maybe there's something in that about helping our players have this sensation of that safe uncertainty that as coaches, we want to take them to places where they're not able to, they're doing things that they find really difficult. 
but maybe us or their peers or the practice or the environment is a safety net for them so if they are finding it too hard they've got someone there who can support them and like if it comes to a principle of how we want to defend playing with a really high line well that 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 goes into the detail of the x's and the o's and and some really specific stuff but maybe and and from my experience and, and beliefs there's probably things that go on around that that help people feel really comfortable in why are we doing this um, there's a, a person called Simon Sinek, who I'm sure you and, and lots of your listeners will have heard of. He's got a great TED talk and he talks about start with why. And it goes from why do we do what we do? How do we do it? What do we do? And he uses Apple as an example within his TED talk. I'm not going to try and regurgitate what his TED talk is, but taking it from a principle of working with a group of players to say, why do we do what we do? What are we trying to achieve this season? What's really important to us? in terms of the way we play the way we are who we are as people if you start with that and you've got some commonality between well we, we want to be brave we're going to be courageous when we're in and out of possession um well that that's your kind of your your big big rocks and your, the big stuff and the purpose behind what you're doing and then actually you can draw that into some really really kind of courageous principles of the way that you play and what that then looks like with the x's and the o's and if everybody's in and pointing in the same direction you probably have an increased chance of, of achieving some of that stuff if you get people all, all going in the same way i wonder whether starting with that why if you dig a little deeper if you've got a team profile and go you know we're going to play in this way because your characteristics of players so your super strength as a center back is this and actually look the way we're going to play is going to fit that so the why is your super strength fits really well with this model or a collective we're going to exploit our super strengths which is our two wide players and explaining to the group early on that why is why we're going to play like this and that's why our tactics and whatnot are going to be built around this because we can all see that this is going to be our strength as a group moving forward and I wonder whether sometimes a new manager coming in doesn't do that and they go, this is what I want to do. So I'm going to do it regardless of what the players have done previously. And that's where maybe you get a little bit of discrepancy between what the players perceive and have done previously to what the manager is able to do with that group right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, like some of that might go back to context. So if, if you're working with a team and you've come in halfway through the season and you need to get a certain amount of points to be able to avoid relegation, then perhaps context context might dictate that the manager comes and really forces a, a playing style or forces a way that we, we have to approach things however we might we might be building for a competition in three years time and we've got a real opportunity now to be able to create and evolve a style of play based around like you say the, the strengths and the characteristics of the the players and also the people that we've got in our team um i, I heard something um this maybe is a slightly sideways step to the question I heard something in the in the Euros last year where Gareth Southgate was being asked by the media about is it going to be a, is it going to be a semi-final is it going to be a final are we going to win the competition and he said the measure of success for him was the players thriving on and off the pitch and I, I don't necessarily know if if the media really got it as an answer but I think from what I've seen and and kind of understand around the way that, that Gareth leads the England team is actually he's he's starting at a point where it's about the people and their investment are on this journey together. What's the story that we want to write? How do how do we want our story to be told by other people? And then that that trickles into the way that we play. Who are, who are the players we've got in our squad? What's the coaching like at Manchester Manchester City? And how does it compare with the coaching they get when they come into England from what the players are being asked to do? And where's the where's the middle ground between the the, the different roles that players are being asked to, to fulfill. I think if if um, there's that connectivity, if you like, between all these different things, and you think about, well, what does thriving look like, like to us as a group, then all of a sudden you can take steps towards that and you look after the people and the performance might well take care of itself to an extent. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think that all those contexts contextualized factors are probably things that maybe meet people in the media or people sitting at home don't always take into their thought process so I look at it like Kieran Trippier when he was put in ahead of some other right backs and 
he's saying like maybe Alexander Arnold was on the brink compared to him and kind of thinking Trent's got to be in, but there's probably a lot of contextualized things of what Trippier does around the camp or specific roles that he plays that we're not privy to, that actually that's why he's in the group. Grealish is another one. Everyone was screaming for him to play. And then Gareth obviously had reasons for why he was setting up the way that he was and not necessarily playing him straight off the bat. Yeah. I mean, we look, we, we live in a world, especially in football where, where we are insight and data rich. We've got so much data, especially on like elite level players about any, any aspect of their game we want, want to look at. Data is really important. Don't get me wrong, but it shouldn't be the conversation. It should be just part of the conversation to, to lead toward like, what are we looking for within in the players? And, and when you go to like the, the, the team that, the manager picks, whether that's Gareth or, or any other first team coach. Well, actually, really honestly speaking, when everybody is reviewing how the game's gone and the players' performances and how the team's got on, there's only one person who can who can really accurately review how we've objectively got on against what, what our objectives were. And, and that's the head coach, because only Gareth and his close team know what that is. And and it, otherwise, the rest of us are just looking at it from our perspective and our window. Really interesting. So, I think moving on slightly to your journey now, and you, as you mentioned, kind of being at UK coaching, you get an opportunity to see a wide variety of sports and stuff. Um, on a day to day basis, what does your role actually look like, um, and, and what type of sports do you work with? Yeah, look, I'm I'm a lucky guy, right? So I get to work with. Um, lots of coaches from any Olympic sport that you can think of. So the, the program that I look after at UK Coaching uh, is funded by UK Sport. So if you think about all the different sports who appear in Olympic Games, we would receive applications from coaches from those sports to come on the t- types of program that we run. So this year we've run four different cohorts of coach development program. And on each program, there's been a different theme. And actually, it doesn't matter if you're from basketball or hockey or equestrian or, or boxing. The, the, the themes within these these different modules are, are really pertinent and, and they have that huge crossover. So we, we've looked at leadership, uh, talent identification and, and uh, development, planning and transitions. And at the moment, we're working with the coaches on coaching behaviors. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I feel like I sit in there with my hat on as a coach developer asking questions and, and listening and, and helping people build their own self-awareness. But also as Tom, the coach, I'm wearing my hat thinking, wow, there's so much gold within what I can see in different environments that that perhaps really kind of would would impact really, wouldn't necessarily would impact really well in football, but actually it helps build your awareness around, well, some things in football we take for granted. We've always done it like this, where actually you see it look a bit different in a different sport so, so it just it just challenges your point of view or your your perspective on things. Have you got any examples of that? I think the role of the coach is is something that always comes to mind when when I'm asked this question, and I go back to almost two years ago having a conversation online with a group of coaches. One was a canoeing coach, uh, one was a basketball coach, and we were talking about the role of the coach during competition. And the basketball coach, rightly so, was saying, "Well, the the coach's role." in competition in basketball is crucial you call a lot a lot of the timeouts um you're calling plays from the side you're making changes to the team with the with the bench rolling on and off so the coach is really active really involved part of the team's collective decision making process throughout competition canoe coach within 20 seconds of that that canoe heading off you're not there anymore and the the canoeist is on their own so your role as a coach is really, really different. And I don't know, it made me really think about that in football. And you see a lot of coaches in football trying to intervene and support the players and they, they call out what they see and, and try to help the players make better decisions during the game. And I wonder, when's that effective? Are there times when perhaps we can get in the way of stuff during competition? And, and also, who's that for? And it's made me really think about, well, if I'm the canoeing coach in a football setting, if I don't have the opportunity to intervene in a game, does that change the way I structure and deliver my practice? 
because are we trying to prepare the players for something slightly different? And again, from the basketball coach perspective, heavily involved, part of the decision-making process. What does practice look like? Does the, does the basketball coach practice timeouts within their usual practice during the week? Because practice is for the players, but it's also for us too. No, that's really a really interesting point. So I guess my question off the back of that, how did their working weeks or their session structures differ because of that? So if you look at the canoe coach, was his or her type of intervention different to what a more uh, like basketball, football-based coach would traditionally do? It might, it, do you know what? This probably depends on the coach and the environment that they're in so certainly couldn't take a broad stroke and say canoeing coaches do this and basket co basketball coaches do do that i did hear stories about canoeing coaches almost taking their their athletes up up onto the bank if you like so they could see the, the river ahead and how it rolled out and the different turns and the different currents and i mean forgive me i don't know all the canoeing terminology um and then almost helping them understand what do you see in this picture what's in front of you how are you going to handle that when when the when the tide is there in these weather conditions how's that going to change the way that you do things so I, I kind of noticed that with the coach I was speaking to there was more of a conversation with the athlete it wasn't you need to do this this and this when you're faced with this situation it's like what, what are we noticing in the environment that could have an impact on our performance today so it was almost like they were both going into surveyor mode seeing all these different things that, that would have an impact for a basketball coach and the way that they're working things, I mean, basketball's got a huge amount of kind of set plays in it and, and kind of quite quite highly structured activities within practice probably sits a little bit closer to what we traditionally see in football settings. And I think the idea for the basketball coach around, well, yeah, this is an opportunity for, for me to practice that one minute intervention that I get in a timeout and then go through that decision-making process. Well, when I make this timeout, how much do I talk? Do I ask questions? Do the athletes just do all the talking? Do they even know why I've called a timeout? So they're going through a whole different thought process because the, I guess the, the way the sport is, is performed, the way the game is played is, is very different to the other sport. But the, the coach's role in both is just as important. It's just delivered slightly differently. I wonder as well whether the effects that then has on the athlete is slightly different. So if you talk about... The, you know, having been on my license and listened to people uh, present, one of the things that Gareth Southgate wants is autonomous decision makers. He was he was big on that, and that's the, the, something that they were driving throughout the academy. Well, you naturally have to be that in an individual sport where your coach isn't there. So, you, you know, if you are canoeing and you're going to go in a certain area and you've overshot, you have to make the decision of how you're going to steer that canoe in a particular angle, particular way to gain the advantage or you know if it's in judo and you're trying to grapple with someone you naturally have to make a decision on where your hands placement is going to go what type of move you're going to go for whereas in football or rugby or basketball just by the nature of there being more people around you probably can dive divert some of that decision making to other people or people that maybe you feel are a better place at that moment in time so I guess the nature of the sport also might dictate the action of the individual and therefore the type of coach relationship that they have as well yeah completely I mean look football is a game of shared endeavor isn't it so it, it, it changes the role of the athlete or the role of the player within the way that they play the game I read some research this weekend actually which said um, and it wasn't taken from a sports perspective. It was about learning in general. But learners who are supported by other learners, so say in a classroom setting, perform 10 to 30% better when they're around other people. So actually, for, from a football perspective, like, like you say, there's that overlap, there's that shared support that other people are able to give. And it makes it really complex for coaches because you're, you're having to think about so many different people and the way they might process information the way they might see a see a situation in front of them and then how they might respond to that and that that's going to be different for everyone and, and there's no shortcuts perhaps to be able to understand the the the, people, the individual individuals in front of you um, and maybe this links back to some of the things we were talking about at the start of the conversation about asking good questions 
with with your athletes what are you working on today what have you noticed in that in that picture and i i try and do this deliberately when i'm coaching and again i don't know how often some of the players that we have will have experienced this but say we've played a phase of play for 10 minutes and we come in and we, we're having a kind of a moment to chat for, for i don't know two minutes i i love to start with just saying well, what have you seen what have you noticed within the game what pictures have you seen because you know what it's like when you're stood on the side of the pitch or in a slightly different coaching position the game looks a bit different so what's going through your mind as a, as a coach from your observations will probably at times be different to the pictures that the players have seen whilst they're in the middle of the game just from a a very practical well I'm in the middle of the pitch and I can see different things to being stood on the side of the pitch so getting that insight from them and allowing them the opportunity to better share that with each other is really really valuable so for instance I don't know you might have you might be playing against a really tricky right winger and they're they're, they're predominantly right-sided and they're really fast and it could be that your left back has noticed that they're that this winger is really poor on their left foot so has started to play in a way that forces them onto their left. But the left back hasn't told anyone else in the team that that's the case. And it sounds really straightforward, but I think if you're able to create an environment where your left back can pass that information on to your six or your, your eight or someone playing in front of them, then all of a sudden you're, you're trying to connect the dots between people. And going back to that point around coaches getting in the way of stuff, if we can facilitate lots of conversation where we can help the players share this kind of information with each other, then then it changes our role. And it, it again, there's times when we need to step in and say, go and do this, or you need to do this right now. Absolutely. But there are e- equally just as many valuable times for the athletes to recognize it themselves and share it with each other. From your experience, do you see generic differences between coaches or athletes who are individually based compared to those that are team based um maybe at times i think the thing that surprised me and i i I just missed this if you like in my naivety of not coaching in any other sport uh, working one-on-one with a swimming coach now individual sport um but actually the swimming coach is working with 20 swimmers at the same time in the pool so they're still having to work with a group like a football coach might be able to do. So therefore they have an opportunity to get the athletes to feedback to each other for one to observe while the other person's doing their set to offer some feedback, to use the whiteboard on the side. Um, the coach has the opportunity to change their coaching position, whatever it might be, maybe, maybe not in the water, like like we might be on the pitch. That's not going to happen. Um, but, but there's, there's more crossover into team sport than you think because they're working with more than one person at once on the whole. I do work with an archery coach or a group of archery coaches and they're at times it might be different for them. So they're working one-on-one with someone. There's no, no other athletes involved. And I've noticed from, from speaking to them and, and looking at kind of some of the footage of them coaching that there's, there's just more of a dialogue. There's more of an open conversation between athlete and coach. How did that go? How did it feel? That's a big word, feel. How does stuff feel? Um, what did you notice? Well, here's what I saw. Uh, can I offer some things to maybe help your performance? So, we, and again, some sports, just from the way that they're played, provide more natural breaks in play for that feedback to happen. So in gymnastics, between every routine or, or, or so, the coach can go and have a conversation with their athlete. In competition in football, well, we do get breaks in play but they're just, they're just slightly different. So it might be from a throw-in, it might be from an injury, it might be from a, from a drinks break on a hot day. But these are opportunities for us to really think about, well, what's the most appropriate way to go and make an intervention? I guess that's, uh, that's probably... Def- Sorry, I'm trying to think of the best way to word this. That's probably challenging reg relief because normally what will happen, someone goes down injured... And it's like, oh, go and get a water bottle and you might make a message to one or two people. But actually, could we use use and utilise that time more effectively where, you know, one of the analysts on the bench has a particular bit of footage that they've seen during that half of play, which everyone's going to watch and say, listen, this is what they're doing in this space to counteract that. I want to do X, Y, Z. 
And I guess, although you may not necessarily know that the injury is going to take place, if we're in a position to show someone that and utilise that thing, so we go, if something does happen, we're going to do this during this period. It's all about those marginal gains that can be made just by framing it different as a coach and staff or as an MDT. Yeah, I think there's probably lots of different ways you could kind of look at this. Well, A, from your coaching team, who do you use on a match day? Who's in your coaching team and what's their role? What are they looking at and what are they looking for? So if you've got your assistant manager looking at out of possession, your goalkeeping coach looking at the defensive line, your other coach within the team looking at our midfield three when we're in possession, then actually whenever the break in play is, you might have some really concise information that you could share with the players at those moments in time. And it doesn't have to be an instruction. It could just be some information that could help them and add to their their library of thoughts, if you like, while they're playing the game. And again, I think this is this is me and my values and my beliefs. So, say we have an injury in the game. It's a two-minute pause in play. I'd love to see what happen more often. Players go and huddle up together. Imagine if all of your 11 players came in without being prompted by the coach and they had 90 seconds to themselves just to refocus, reframe, share stuff, think about what they're going to do when they go back out and coach forward, if you like, and become coaches to an extent within the group to themselves i think i think that could has the potential to be really really powerful and again it's not always going to be appropriate but if if the people listening to this podcast were able to kind of reflect on well what where do i see opportunities to intervene in competition where the message really gets through and then start to think about where if we have an injury and it goes over a minute maybe this is a cue for us to do x y or z um if it's a hot day and we've got a water break and the players come in, how how piffy do I need to be with the language that I use so I can get a, a clear message across quickly to the group? Or actually, we've got a break. This is a cue for me to step back as a coach and let the players problem solve for themselves. And obviously that depends on quite a few things, where we are in the game, where we are in the season, what the score is, what we need to do. But reflecting on that can certainly make you more effective as a coach. And it could mean that when you do make an intervention, well, it's probably going to be a more effective intervention. I guess it is having that plan and prep in place. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the video um, of Carl Walker and Fernandinho from the weekend, but there's one where they're zooming in on, um, I'm not sure who Mikko Arteta's understudy is. I'm a Spurs fan, so I try not to pay too much attention (laughs) to Arsenal. Um, But they were zooming in on those guys doing some stuff on the bench. And you can actually see those two barking on instructions to the players from the sideline and I thought it was quite interesting because probably when I grew up and potentially me as a as a younger coach I would say to players listen just let them get on with it it's their time and stuff but actually if we're encouraging that dialogue at times we may need to accept that that will also come from the sideline because if they've got that relationship where they feel like they can support one another at all times even if they're on the bench they may want to say stuff that's going to help they may have their own language that's going to help and and whatnot but I found it really interesting because you could see both of them obviously talking to different people but telling them what they'd seen or what they'd noticed or how they may negate a certain problem that Arsenal were providing yeah nice I I think that again it, it probably depends a huge amount on the level that you're playing and who you've got in your bench as well um if you're able to create an environment where people feel like they're safe to share that kind of stuff, um, but also it's going to be well received and, and used well, then then fantastic. All these, if you can use your players as additional coaches on the bench, and and kind of frame that with them on what their role is, then amazing. That 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 can only add to uh, the competitive edge that you have as a group. And so looking at in your role, I'd imagine that you would get some pretty cool opportunities to either go on some study visits or go and visit different coaches in different environments and stuff. Is there any uh, one visit or any one environment that you've been to that you think that's quite unique? I'm not necessarily saying it's the best you've ever seen or the worst you've ever seen, but unique in the way that it works and that you're actually like, that might make me consider how I practice or how I do things. 
Within my role at UK Coaching, it's been an interesting two years. So I started a week before the first national lockdown began. So I, I've I've literally spent all but about five days of my job working from from this very spot. Uh, so getting out and seeing coaches in practice and in situ within this role has been a bit limiting. But from previous roles, I'm thinking about where I've seen football take place in slightly different environments and different contexts. There's definitely been things that have really stuck with me and um, really highlighted how football is a tool that that when you look at the super elite, it's incredible. It's fantastic what what athlete what from an athletic perspective people are capable of. But actually, all of those people who have come through that pathway will have been involved in football at, at lots of different ages and stages. So two things really kind of come to light about kind of how football and how sport changes lives. So I was really fortunate to go off to Zambia um, a couple of years ago and, and, and coach with the Swindon Town Football in the Community um, program, working with a group of coaches out in Zambia who have zero resources, like zero resources from a practical physical perspective, but but actually have every resource in terms of enthusiasm and support and just how much they want to give to the game and give to people. And uh, I mean, I noticed that, I mean, we were, we were talking to them about using a whiteboard and how, how that could really help get your message across to the players. And I naively went in delivering that thinking, not realizing, well, no one's going to have a whiteboard or access to a whiteboard, but then find the next day that they're etching what they want their team to do into a piece of wood to show the players. I was like, wow, that, that, that's mind blowing. So I think for me, some of the some of the principles of going somewhere like that, quite an extreme environment, is actually you can really help people think about um, the how they coach, not the what they coach. So as coaches, I suppose a lot of us have the same content. We can we can all find the same content on the internet. I bet if half a dozen people are doing possession practices this evening, they've all typed it into Google and probably come up with the same top five practices that they'd like to go and deliver. So the what could be similar in lots of environments, but the how might be the difference between a good coach and a great coach. And it goes back to all maybe, all maybe some of those kind of brilliant basics um, as a coach of so building good relationships, striking a rapport with the athletes, um, sharing the decision-making process, that type of thing, which these coaches in Zambia just did like this. It was just, sorry, Siri's kicking in. Um, it was just instant to them. It was It was just part of the way they did things which for me, I just left feeling kind of so energized by the fact that they, they lack so much support, but what they can offer to the game is so rich and so valuable. And I think that any coach in, in a country like England could could really dial up what that looks like because we've got the, the, the resource support and we've, we've got the opportunity to go and impact players. And, and I suppose the other interesting environment where I've worked um, and spent some time in, a, this links back to my time working at Arsenal, I was invited to coach on a on a project which involved going into prison and working with people who were who were in, in prison. Now again, again it's it's as far away from performance sport or performance football as you could ever imagine. But actually what sport can do for people is absolutely huge. Now you think about the impact of your session with the under tens and dial that up by a hundred with people who who are in prison and made some tricky bad decisions perhaps uh, along their journeys but actually if you're going in there thinking about developing the person first how do we help someone develop their communication skills develop their resilience develop their confidence develop their creativity in an environment that might maybe stifles some of that sometimes then actually you can really think about the impact that you can have as a coach and I'm sure we've all done it right so when we're working with the under 10s on a community session or, or we're out with the academy group you might say things that you don't think about again but actually really sticks with an individual and i'm sure anyone listening has probably had a coach say something to them that's always stayed with them but the coach probably never realized how meaningful the words they used were to you and going into prison really highlighted that for me in terms of the difference a coach can make to someone's life Let's face it, I don't know what the numbers are, but the amount of young boys coming through academy football and the amount of young girls coming through regional talents at clubs, how many of them will make professional footballers? Well, it's such a small amount, 
that all, all of these young people are going to be part of our society. So as a coach, part of our role surely has to be around developing them as or helping them be the best person they can be as well as the best player that they can be. And for me, that, that just really was amplified in that prison environment around, well, why putting people first and giving people time is, is so valuable and so important. And as coaches, we've got a brilliant opportunity to do that for so many. Was there any one particular individual or person or group that you, you felt a particular connection with or you saw that actually this has made a real impact to their well-being or their development as an individual? One, one person comes to mind, and I, I won't use their name, but I, I, I understand and could see very clearly that, that self-harm was a really big issue for this person in prison. And it, and it is, I didn't realise this myself before going into the environment, but in women's prison in particular, self-harm is, is one of the biggest challenges that they, that they face in there. And uh, it was kind of quite, this person had quite, quite a troubling past and, and, and a very challenging journey. And I'm not saying that the football sessions that we delivered were the silver bullet that solved all their problems, but they... I'd like to think that they played a part in the, this person taking steps in the right direction. And from the time that we were going in and delivering these football sessions and supporting them through, through the, the football project, the, the, the prison started to notice that self-harm incidents happened less, that the person started to talk about themselves in a more positive light, that they came into the gym with a smile on their face rather than not coming to the gym at all. And, and for me, investing all that time and energy if it can have that type of impact on one person that they feel better about themselves and they they start to like themselves a little bit then how that then ripples into the rest of their life and what could be when they come out of the gate well that just for me is is the power of coaching and the power of sport you have to change the way that you act going into that environment or did it subsequently change how you delivered or how you acted when you then left and have moved on to other pastures? Uh, massive exercise in humility. My goodness, I've never felt more grounded in, in all my life. Um, and I think I was probably really, really nervous before going in. I'd never set foot in a prison before. So, so it was almost a, a natural kind of trepidation about what, what's this experience going to be like. The one thing that hadn't occurred to me that then I found out quite quickly was, well, that, that was replicated or reciprocated by the women who were about to receive this coaching support. Day one, they're, they're all sat on the bench in the gym, about 15 of them, arms crossed, heads down, don't want to make eye contact, really nervous. I'm thinking, all right, okay, they, this group is going to be hard work. But actually, all of a sudden, realise well, it's not. It's not about them being hard work. They, they, they struggle to feel feel like they can trust someone else. They, they've had lots of really quite challenging experiences, which will really impact on the way they approach perhaps an education setting. But by taking the time to get to know them and understand them and build a rapport, all the other stuff starts to follow. Uh, and I think, I think the at the the root of that, building rapport with people, building relationships, sharing a bit of yourself. And for me, in that situation, it was very much about well, I've do you know what I've not been here before. I'm a bit nervous as well. Then if you can if you can give a bit of yourself, then you'll get something back. And you translate that into an environment which is nothing like prison, but working in in a football setting offering that humility and that vulnerability can be a real super strength sharing with the players I'm struggling with this can you help me can you help me can you give me some feedback on this it, it's the same stuff it just looks different in different environments yeah it's interesting what you said there around the feedback because um it's something that as, a, as I got older and was coaching I got more comfortable with is just saying to the kids tell me <laughs> if, if, if I'm not doing it, if I'm not making sense, tell me because, you know, I'm here for you and not to feel nervous. And I think there was one group in particular that I was with for a two year period that actually they got to a stage where they were more than comfortable to do that. Anyone in the group would say, I don't like this. Or I do like that. Or do we have to do this? Or, you know, they could have a laugh and a joke, which I think is an important part of their 
environment moving forward. Um, linking back to what you said around Zambia, you mentioned around the one thing that they definitely can do there is build a rapport. And you said like, regardless of the facilities or what they had access to, they were able to build a rapport with the people. Why do you think they would excelled so much in that area? I think it, it, you have to zoom out really to understand that. And I don't fully understand it, but from what I noticed, the, the environment was, was huge. So, so we ran a football festival one of the days and we had children walking 10, 15 miles to come, come to it because they loved it so much. So it, it was almost about, well, as a community, we have to work together, we have to pull together, otherwise we don't go anywhere. And then that was reflected in the way that the coaches coached and the way that they work with the young people. Now, look, look, Zambia and the culture there and the environment is really different to, to here. Um, it's quite a hierarchical um, expectation. So if a coach says, do this, everybody does it. There's no questions asked. Um, the number one coaching invention that I know, intervention, sorry, that I noticed when I was out there was stop, stop, stand still, slap around the back of the head. You're doing it wrong, doing it, do it like this. But that that's just the way it is there. Um, but everyone's there together. Uh, I think the, the moment that really stands in the mind so we got invited to watch like an under 21s cup final, which was played on a, on a, on a football pitch, which was just a, a dust, a dusty piece of land really with white lines painted and, and some goalposts. And this game was tasty. I mean, the, the tackles were flying in. Um, I remember at one point someone got kicked in the shin and about 50 people around on the pitch surrounded the referee. It was, it looked like chaos, but it was organized chaos. People kind of knew what was going on. Um, and nobody left anything on that pitch. As soon as the final whistle went, both teams came in, they stood in a circle, they, they had a prayer together and they all shook hands and gave each other a hug. And, and it was amazing. It was like, and I remember speaking to someone afterwards saying such a, such a, a switch from like this heat of competition into this togetherness and this community. And like the message was, well, yeah, without community, we haven't got anything. We have to, we have to be together. And that always stood with me. And I, I can't necessarily imagine that always happening sometimes in Sunday League football in the United Kingdom, both teams coming together for a for a chat and, and a kind of come at the end after some intense rivalry. But it was something, definitely something that, that was a connector. And I imagine, as you said, it is the context of it and that community side. But I can imagine also you've probably seen the power that if you get it right in a team environment with the people that you work with, how much of a positive that can have on not just the group and potentially the success of the group, but also the well-being of each individual involved. If you link in all those experiences where you have a community base that cares for one another, then, you know, in Zambia, then you've got the effect that sport can have on someone's well-being from your prison time actually if you combine those two things in a good environment in a wet and rainy Tuesday night in Oxford then actually that's going to make everyone in your care a better person and hopefully a better player. Yeah absolutely I mean you talk about community or friendship and what, what does being part of a team mean to the people in the group you kind of hear the word family sometimes. I'm not sure how accurate family is because not all families are harmonious, um, but, but maybe not all teams are either. So uh, I think there's lots of lessons in that. There's a great book I'm, I'm kind of getting towards the end of now called Belonging by a guy called Owen Eastwood. Um, so Owen has done some work with the England football team and Gareth Southgate and, and the, the stuff around kind of what's our culture, what's our identity. And the book Belonging is kind of taken from the, the roots of kind of Kiwi culture and Maori culture. It's fascinating, really. And, and it kind of goes along that principle that as a, as a human race, we have to survive. We, we survive by working in teams and, and how do effective teams start to work. And there's probably lots of features of what an effective team could look like. What I've noticed, well, there's, a, there's language that you hear quite frequently or I've heard quite frequently recently around psychological safety so the opportunity where people can share things without the fear of retribution or just being able to be honest with each other and being able to create space and time where you can be honest and share your feelings without necessarily the feedback being really fluffy and not necessarily very very useful so there's, there's 
probably a whole different conversation on well, what are what are the features of high performing or really effective teams? Um, but that that kind of shared vulnerability, that humility as a group, um, are certainly things that I've noticed are consistent with with teams that that do well. I, I remember having a conversation on a podcast at work with uh, a chap called Joe Montemuro, who was the Arsenal women's first team manager. And at the time, Arsenal women had just won the Women's Super League. Going into the following season, I, I asked Joe a question around, well, how do you maintain that, that kind of that drive season two? Like, what are you doing next after you've won a title? And kind of the essence of what Joe said was, well, it's much more than the football and what happens on the pitch. It's about it's about the strength and the, the, the development of people's character. And that's what we're really interested in. The football stuff will come and will follow. But if we focus on the character, then then brilliant things can happen all around our environment. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Maybe explains why you get um, dynasties and successful periods, because once you get over that initial jump of being successful, if that is then your focus on the character and the you know increasing their resilience increasing whatever that is confidence or that type of stuff they already know how to do the winning bit so now we're going to upskill all of that and hopefully that will help the winning even further it might, maybe it is an explanation as to why teams are, can be successful for prolonged periods of times if you've got individuals in there that really buy into all the competencies based stuff yeah, I heard a boxing coach say, if you're the champion, then prepare like the challenger. And I, I, I was in into a book recently called Legacy, which I'm sure lots of your listeners have, have, have read, uh, which kind of traces some of the All, Back, All Blacks um, success and, and values and the things which underpin their team. And I, I look, I'll get the dates wrong. So please, please don't call me out on this. Um, but they, 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 the All Blacks talked about being the most dominant side in world rugby ever so for them winning the world cup i think it was 2015 when the all blacks last won the world cup um and they say in the book well 2016 was a tougher year for them because being the dominant team doesn't mean winning the world cup and then having a bad year that means winning after winning after winning and all the all the kind of what the team had to do to perform to an extent to, to get there um and i think when it comes to looking at teams like the all blacks and we can be drawn to what, what are the things that they're doing? Could we do them in the, our environment? It's not about copy and paste, but it's about understanding, well, what, what might work in our environment, but what, what also might not work? What do we have to evolve or adapt for it to work for us? I think what that links to as well, which we can now move on to, is kind of having a self-awareness or self-reflection of us as an individual, but also our environment and maybe the, the benefits of it and maybe the, the negatives of it for you and your experiences is there any particular frameworks or evaluation pieces that you like to use which kind of looks at this um type of area and reflecting of, of strengths and or weaknesses yeah i mean look, as a coach i'd consider myself quite reflective uh, like like many many people i'm sure listening to this that that car journey home um when when it's kind of that hot debrief with yourself is 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 something that's really important but perhaps something that that coaches could really challenge themselves on in the way that they go about their reflection and and i guess before i answer your question michael some of the things that really spring to mind is well when you're reflecting what are you reflecting on is it the whole session is it certain moments how do you know that they're the most appropriate moments to reflect on um how often are you reflecting who are you reflecting with? Have you got people around you who might better offer you support, offer you challenge, offer you a different perspective? Um, and and that that when piece as well, I'm sure all of us have been in practices that we leave and we have a certain feeling about how it's gone initially, but over a period of time, whether that's one day, one week, one month, we might start to feel differently about how things have gone. I guess, again, it's perspective. It, it, it changes over time. So being able to understand, well, yeah, what, what are the moments that are important to reflect on? Who am I with? When do I do it? How often do I do it? Um, are really important because it, it can give you just some different ways of looking at, at, at the topic. Um, in terms of kind of models and things, I suppose for me, um, 
a kind of there's a model out there which is kind of research backed called Gibbs reflective model which links quite closely to emotions so you you almost try to think about what's happened but then link back to what are my feelings about it how do I feel about what's happened then I can evaluate it and start to analyze it and then start to draw maybe an action plan about what do I do next because of this um, but but understanding the event so what you're reflecting on from a range of perspectives can be really useful too and we've talked a few times today about how how and when do you involve athletes in that process so it might be the case that we we could reflect on something together whether that's at the end of a game or, or at the end of a practice and create an environment where people can honestly share what, what are they what did they notice what are they feeling so there's there'll be times where that's really useful and there'll be times where just doing it on your own um, and having some quiet time to be able to do it record a voice note journal it write some stuff down is just as valuable i think it is quite a, a personal thing on, on that but yeah that linking to how i felt about the situation and then taking time to uh, evaluate it but then plan forward is is healthy for me because it if i can plan forward from it i feel like i'm making steps as a coach and i guess looking at this in a wider context the the feeling piece around you know how you felt about that environment or felt about that situation is it important to vocalize that to other people so the, the example i'm giving is if you've come in um come in with a football team or basketball team and you've lost to a last second buzzer beater or you've lost a last minute goal the way you feel about that game may be different because of that particular outcome and my my saying to myself is if I'm feeling down it's never as bad as I think it is and if I'm feeling really high it's never as good as I think it is I always work on the fact that actually when you go back and watch it it always tends to even itself out so that feeling piece, is it important to vocalise your reflection there and then? Or would you say from your experience, actually taking a bit of time to remove that feeling and then spending time when the heat's died down a little bit is more beneficial? I don't necessarily believe there's a silver bullet to that. Feeling's going to be important because it's a bit of a compass to, to kind of a, what, what feels right for us as a coach. But maybe emotions sometimes can get in the way and, and make the way that you reflect things reflect on things quite subjective rather than objective. So I, th I think if, if you as a coach are able to kind of be able to have that self-awareness to say, well, I felt this in the moment and this has guided my reflections, but now I can look at it slightly later when the, the, the emotion is, is less hot, cooler perhaps, um, then, I, then I might feel differently about, about the situation. So, yeah, I mean, I know the the SAS would do hot and cold debriefs. So we'll do hot debriefs straight after a, 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 a say it's a training exercise and, and then a week later do a cold debrief. And then they, they will kind of see how people start to change, change their, their views on things. Um, so I think just for coaches to have that um, awareness to say, well, I'll feel differently at different points, but, but be able to track that, I think, is important. It, that's a really interesting piece around the hot and cold because you look at um on social media again you get like your neil warnock end of thing team talks i imagine a very hot one but then what that looks like three days later i don't know and yeah i think that's a really interesting actually how does your group configure configure how do they work best do they prefer cold debriefs where it's given a couple of days and you can actually look back over footage and provide statistics and say well, this is what we said we were going to do. We didn't do it because of X, Y, Z. Or are they a group that prefers those hot debriefs to get stuff out in the open there and then? And can you find a middle ground where all the players in your groups get access to what they need or be it as a preference or as a development tool? Yeah, well, I, th I guess if you think about debriefing as, a, as an intervention, I guess reflecting on, well, when, when is my intervention going to be the most sticky? I can tell you if, if we've lost a game and it, it's gone to the wire, it's close. The last thing the players are going to want to do straight after the game is look at the footage and analyse it. They need a bit of time just to kind of do that for themselves and let alone share it with other people. So I, I guess for coaches, if you're doing that with a group, there's a range of different ways that maybe you could approach that. 
again, it could be instruction. You might better, might want to tell the players this has worked and this hasn't. You might want to ask questions. You might want to use video. You might want to use the whiteboard. So when you come to debrief together, understanding, well, what's the purpose behind this? Do I need to tell them something that they just haven't seen? Or are, are we are we sharing this and having some open and honest discussions? That probably then has an impact on on the way that you go and deliver it. Sure. We're fastly approaching the time we'd allotted for this. So I'm going to ask you one last question, which is who um, is the most impressive or unique practitioner you've either seen or worked with and why? Oh, killer question to finish with. Goodness me. The, the, there's quite a few who spring to mind. Can I, can I share three? And I'll be really quick with them. Yeah, that's I, absolutely I fine. Want... I'm more interested on the why. Why are these individuals picked? Um, well, these three people, perhaps they they all fit with me because that they resonate with maybe part of my character and my personality, and, and perhaps some of the messages they share really really speak to how I believe coaching could could or should be done. So, one who I know is a previous guest on your podcast, uh, Russell Earnshaw or Rusty from the Magic Academy, um, asks brilliant questions. Um, really challenges people to see things from a different perspective uh, always it, it seems to be on this mission where we're to keep coaching fun and engaging and interactive and and exciting for people so so I think Rusty's got an amazing way with, with his language um, another person um, who springs to mind is a chap called Richard Cheatham so Richard is at the University of Winchester uh, has done a huge amount of work around play and the power of play um, so R- Richard uh, does does great work with students that really has an impact on the way that they coach but for me the thing that has always stood out with Richard is about how he just takes so much time to understand people to build relationships and to he genuinely cares about people and I, I think that that really stands through he's, he's almost a, a, a coaching Jedi if you like in 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 my eyes um, and then the other person who who springs to mind is a chap who I'm sure some of your listeners will know, a guy called Steve Salis, um, who works in football. He's at AFC Wimbledon at the moment, had various different roles, but was originally a teacher. Um, he's got a book out called Educating Football. I'm not, I'm not on any commission, by the way. Um, but Steve came and delivered a, a couple of workshops for us at UK Coaching. And just, again, the, the language he uses and off, offers a real, really fresh thinking and a fresh perspective um, on, on almost what, what, what teaching looks like and therefore what coaching could look like um some of the challenges that we face within the game of football and 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 perhaps some alternative ways to to solve them um yeah steve, steve the way he says things and what he says has really stuck with me so yeah rusty richard cheatham steve salas uh, um, would be in my three of the people who have really kind of grabbed my attention perfect listen really appreciate your time a great conversation hopefully we can catch up again soon thanks michael thanks for having me on Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.